0: Today on Something You Should Know, product packaging is sometimes more interesting than the product itself. Like the tin can, it was invented 50 years before the can opener. Then, you might think the
1: world is going to hell. It's not. Things are actually getting better. Diseases are being eradicated, smallpox no longer exists polio is almost gone. Kids are going to school worldwide. 90% of people under the age of 25 can read or write. It's just unprecedented in human history. There are fewer wars. Then, flammable and inflammable.
0: Why do we have two words that sound opposite but mean the same thing? And your musical tastes. Why you have them and what they say about you.
2: I think a lot of people will look at their musical taste and go back to when they were in middle school and high school and their first concert they went to, their first kiss, the music that really meant something to their budding identity.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Ask a business owner or manager who's looking to hire someone and they'll often use the word hope, as in, I hope I find someone good, I hope this person works out you don't want hope. You want to nail this perfectly because the right people can make all the difference to your business. Now you don't need hope. You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster – of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I think makes Indeed special is that it's not just names and resumes. It's a system that guides you through the hiring process to help you get the right candidate for the job. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. You just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. Something I've always found interesting, and we've featured on this podcast from time to time, those stories of how products came to be, their origins, who invented them. Sometimes, though, Sometimes the stories about the packaging are more interesting than the stories about the products. And so this episode, we shall begin with some of those packaging stories, starting with oatmeal. Oatmeal used to be sold in bulk, in huge barrels, and very few people ate oatmeal. After all, oats were, and I guess still are, for horses. Then a man named Henry Parsons Crowell came along. He had a mill that was able to produce more oatmeal in a year than Americans had ever eaten in a year. So he had this great idea of putting the oatmeal into smaller packages that still looked like barrels and giving these packages personality by putting a Quaker on it. It gave it a sense of purity. Quaker oatmeal was born and oatmeal consumption soared. The first tin cans were actually these huge containers. They were used to feed British armies, and they were almost impossible to open. In fact, many soldiers suffered serious injuries trying to open these big cans with knives and rocks and bayonets and anything else they could find. It wasn't until 50 years after the invention of the tin can that somebody invented the can opener. The Marlboro cigarette package was the first product packaging designed for television. In fact, the old box had some very delicate graphics on it. But they changed the Marlboro box to the simple red and white design it has today so it could be seen more clearly on fuzzy black and white televisions back when cigarette commercials were legal. And that is something you should know. (music) In these last several months, we've all been living under this coronavirus cloud, which I I think warps our thinking somewhat. There's a tendency to look at the world as if it's falling apart. There is seemingly just a lot of bad news, bad things happening everywhere. It can really drag you down and give you that, I don't know, like a sense of dread. I know I've felt it. And then along comes Steven Pinker. He's an experimental cognitive scientist, a professor of psychology at Harvard, and he is author of the book Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And he's about to tell you why the world isn't going to hell in a handbasket and why there's real hope for optimism. Hi, Stephen. Welcome. So where does this notion that things aren't so bad, and in fact that things are getting better, where does this idea come from?
1: This came from two sources. One was discovering, to my surprise, that many aspects of human well-being have been increasing. That is, we are uh, living longer, uh, healthier diseases are being conquered, more uh, children are going to school worldwide, uh, the higher levels of uh, education, uh, work weeks are are shorter, we spend less time on housework. And coming across all of these graphs on uh, improving uh, life, uh, and not just in the West, but worldwide, made me realize that there's a um, a story that most people don't appreciate uh, because the news covers what goes wrong, uh, and, uh, and that they should, should be put between two covers and given an explanation. It was a similar process to the one that led me to write The Better Angels of Our Nature a few years ago. The subtitle of that book was Why Violence Has Declined, uh, a, uh, an idea that just shocks people because you would guess from the news that violence is increasing. But I wrote that one when I saw uh, graph after graph showing declines in war and crime and violence against women and violence against children. And I realized that, that a story needed to be told there and an explanation. And uh, I wrote this book when I saw that uh, the news was even better than I had thought.
0: So when you say enlightenment, do you define that as what?
1: The enlightenment refers to the movement mainly uh, in the uh, second, beginning in the second half of the 18th century, to use uh, reason as opposed to authority and tradition and dogma to understand the world and to attempt to uh, improve it, to improve people's lives. And we've been doing that pretty well. Yeah, with uh, obvious setbacks. It's, uh, progress isn't magic, so it's not that everything gets better for everyone, but yeah, if you try to measure human well-being, how many of us get sick, how many of us get murdered, how many of us die in war, how long do we live, how educated are we, uh, how much free time do we have, then, uh, then, then progress has occurred.
0: It seems so counterintuitive, because when you hear people you know, on television or just at a cocktail party talking about the world, no one talks about how great things are getting and yet you have a whole list of things that are improving like crazy.
1: Well, uh, people are living longer. Um, Extreme poverty has been in steep decline worldwide. (laughs) About 10% of the world's population meets the definition of extreme poverty. Not so long ago, a few decades ago, it was... um, 30%, Thirty percent. So, forty uh, percent. Even for three decades ago, diseases are being eradicated. Smallpox no longer exists. Polio is almost gone. Uh, kids are going to school worldwide. Ninety percent of people under the age of uh, twenty-five can read or write. That's just unprecedented in human history. There are fewer wars. Wars between countries, where country A declares war on country B, and they line up their tanks and they bomb each other's uh, cities, and uh, their their naval ships uh, have at each other. Uh, those are the wars that kill the most people. Uh, they've, they've been in steep decline. There are hardly any of them. The American homicide rate has fallen by uh, more than half just uh, since the 1990s. So those are a few examples.
0: Do you think that the decline in war and and really most of the things you just mentioned are at least partly the result of, of just a different sensibility? That when you think about war, you think about you know two countries going at each other, killing each other's people, killing each other's people, that that uh, maybe that seemed like a good idea at some point, but today it just seems so barbaric.
1: I think there is something to that, uh, even though it does sound a little vague and fuzzy, but I think there really is something to it. Partly it's because that uh, we do value human life more. The idea of sending tens of thousands of soldiers uh, out of trenches so they could get machine gunned down for uh, no reason, which is what happened during World War One. Generals are a little more squeamish about doing that. Human life is worth more, and the idea of, of kind of sending your 18-year-old men to get slaughtered for national glory uh, or to fight over a plot of land uh, is not as appealing as it used to be.
0: But the fact that it used to be, like like the, 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 it did used to be, like that's what we did, That that was a good thing to do, it does... Because I'll, I'll watch, you know, old movies and newsreels and uh, documentaries about World War One or World War Two, and I sometimes sit there and go, "This is the stupidest thing in the world."
1: <laughs> I, I, totally, I, I completely agree, and that is part of uh, enlightenment. That is, you scrutinize ways of doing things that you know your your, your fathers did, and your grandfathers, and your great grandfathers, and you say, "Hey, do we have to keep doing it this way? Maybe we should give it a fresh think." And, you know, it was that kind of thinking that um, abolished slavery, which is as old as civilization. The, uh, I mean, the Greeks, the Romans, every ancient civilization had slaves. But it was only starting in the 18th century that people thought, hey, the, you know, the, the, these are human beings too. And just because it's a, a great labor-saving device uh, for us, but, you know, what about their lives? Uh, or another example is um, uh, uh, profligate capital punishment, executing people for poaching or shoplifting counterfeiting, and doing it in grisly torture executions, where you, you, know, you disembowel someone uh, in front of a, a cheering audience. Uh, starting in the Enlightenment, they had second thoughts about whether that was such a great idea. And that's why we have our prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment in the American um, Bill of Rights. And the American Declaration of Independence and and Bill of Rights, those are like the quintessential uh, gifts of the Enlightenment. The, the, the framers were Enlightenment thinkers, and they had a lot of correspondence with their counterparts in Europe. And it was that kind of thinking that, that led to institutions like democracy and uh, bills of rights, the first hints of organizations of international cooperation. Uh, and and we, we owed a lot of these ideas to the, uh, the thinkers of the late 18th century.
0: Is enlightenment just a, a natural prog- a progression of something? Is it, is it uh, impossible to stop? Does it always happen?
1: I don't think so. It's actually, uh, you know, it took uh, thousands of years for it to, to really uh, flourish in the late 18th century. And and a number of things happened to light the spark. Partly it was the scientific revolution of the 17th century that just showed that a lot of uh, intuitions that people had had for a long time were flat wrong when you did the science, such as that the sun went around the earth. It was partly the wars of religion. The Catholics and Protestants were uh, slaughtering each other over uh, points of theological doctrine, and people thought, geez, maybe this isn't really uh, about anything. Maybe we should just uh, you know, get along and have people live good lives uh, on Earth. And partly it was the age of exploration. All the new continents were being discovered, and uh, people realized, my God, there's a, a whole world out there that we didn't even dream of. So all of these things, I think, uh, pushed and uh, pushed the Enlightenment, and pushing back are features of human nature that uh, the Enlightenment had to overcome, like our tribalism, the idea that it isn't all of humanity that should be flourishing, but just uh, our tribe in in, uh, combat with other tribes. Or authoritarianism, the idea that we need a strong leader, uh, a king, and that the king or leader or uh, dictator kind of embodies the goodness of the and virtue of the people. So we don't need laws to uh, constrain him because uh, he just, he just uh, embodies what's best in us as opposed to democracy. So yeah, and these things are continuing to push back. There's always been a, a tug of war between the Enlightenment and various counter-Enlightenment ideologies.
0: My guest is best-selling author Steven Pinker. His book is Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. Always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or Chardonnay. Or maybe you're more of a whiskey drinker. One of their single-barrel bourbons is sure to please. With a little help from one of their friendly guides, find the perfect bottle that's just right for you. Hosting friends or family and don't have time to shop in-store? No problem. Total Wine & More makes it easy to get everything you need for any occasion with curbside pickup and delivery. But you know what the best thing about shopping at Total Wine & More is? That every bottle comes with the confidence of knowing you just found something amazing. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine and More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B-21. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well, that that could be a costly move. NerdWallet, you've heard of NerdWallet. NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. So, if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards. Free flight, room upgrades—who knows? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. So, Stephen, isn't it interesting that we have this enlightenment, and you've you've mentioned so many things that that have happened that. You know, fewer people are dying, we're living longer, all these things. And yet, it's not the perception of many people because it's not that we celebrate it much. And in fact, what we do see when we turn on the television is how horrible everything is. You would think that as we become more enlightened, we would like all like pat each other on the back and say that instead of saying, yeah, but look how horrible everything is.
1: That's right. We, we, uh, we pocket our good fortune. We kind to take it for granted. I mean, how, how many of us um, ever think the thought, wow, I can turn on a tap and clean water comes out and I can drink it and I won't get cholera. These are amazing accomplishments. And in poor parts of the world, they, they can not take them for granted. They get poisoned by their, their water and they, they drink their own waste. But uh, we have been so fortunate that these have been around and they work so well that we don't think, hey, these are, these are great human accomplishments. And instead we... I think we do a lot of moaning about what's going wrong. And, and, of course, things will always go wrong, and it's good to be aware of them. But, um, but we don't realize what the accomplishments that are responsible for our uh, so many good things in life. Even something like little, little pleasures and of everyday life. Like when I was a student... If I wanted to see a great classic film, you know, The Seventh Seal or Casablanca or a Hitchcock film, you'd have to wait years for it to show up in a local repertory theater or maybe on late-night TV in a little black-and-white set. Now you can stream it on demand, so even access to culture. And it's, uh, we, we all complain about how horrible social media are and the Internet and what it's doing to us, and the filter bubbles and the bullying, but we never stop pause to think about why we adopt these technologies in the first place, namely there are all these ways in which they do make our lives better.
0: So what's the takeaway here? What's the, the big so what? I mean, it's, it's nice to, to take a moment to, to realize that things aren't as bad as maybe we are led to believe, but so what?
1: The, the, the takeaway is that um, we should realize what we're in danger of losing, maybe the institutions of democracy and regulated markets and uh, organizations of international cooperation that have uh, prevented World War III from happening and that have um, uh, given us um, the, the uh, benefits we take for granted. But also to, to uh, keep in mind that uh, the problems that are unsolved, and that there are plenty of them, um, are solvable. If we remember that uh, by applying reason and science to our problems, we can gradually succeed. Our, our ancestors did before us. That's why we live the, uh, the good life, or well, at least why the good things that we enjoy came into being. And although there are plenty of problems and there, some of them are really severe, the mindset should be, these are our problems that, that, uh, that we can solve. Even if the solutions themselves bring new problems, which they then have to be solved in their turn, but we have to take a uh, constructive problem-solving mindset to the uh, dilemmas that we continue to face.
0: As you look at this enlightenment from the late 1800s going forward, is there any reason to think it will stop, or does it just keep going? Do we do we become more and more enlightened, and do more and more great things?
1: Well, it's um, I, you know, I think some some of the positive developments could uh, could keep going. There's, there there are. Amazing um, breakthroughs in, 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 possible in the pipeline in uh, biomedical research, uh, therapies for cancer, pop, treatments for Alzheimer's, uh, ways of fixing uh, horrible inherited diseases. There may be fantastic breakthroughs in the energy pipeline. Uh, just the just, uh, day before yesterday, uh, there was a breakthrough announced at MIT in fusion, nuclear fusion, uh, which had always seemed a dream, you know, 30 years away and it always will be, but uh, it may be just 15 years away.
0: But is it the, is it the concern, the complaining, the worry, the, that the, the, you know, this administration or that that group or whatever, that that's what fuels some of this? Because Because as you look back through this age of enlightenment from the late 1800s, I imagine that... All during that, people were complaining then and uh, up until now about all the things that are wrong. And does that that complaining and worry about all the things that are wrong fuel the Enlightenment?
1: Well, yes, to, to some extent that it does. Um, there, There is a danger of complacency, and, and if we're not aware of a problem, then we'll never try to solve it. Um, I, I just argue in Enlightenment now that that it can go way too far in the direction of of fatalism and doom mongering and uh, radicalism—that that if too much pessimism, we, everything's a crisis, everything's an existential threat, everything is the uh, the end of this and the dawn of a post something era—that uh, people can say, "Oh, these are just uh, intractable. We'll never solve them. Let's just uh, have a good uh, have a good time day to day." Yeah. Well, so where so does that, that come from? Optimal amount of pessimism.
0: Where does this come from? I mean, you could argue that we're already there. That. A lot of people believe that it's too late. Uh, we've gone to hell in a handbasket. That our president is an idiot, and you know, you never used to say things like "our president is an idiot" because he was the president. But and and people of opposing political parties could still be respectful of each other, and and it seems like a lot of that is just gone and and not coming
1: back. Yes, there is a, and I mean, you mentioned uh, President Trump, and he above all rode to office on a. Uh, narrative of gloom and decline and decadence. He rode that pessimism to, into office. And part of the problem was that the uh, people on the the, the the liberals, the centrists, didn't have a counter-narrative. They weren't willing to say, uh, actually, things aren't that bad. People are you know, moving back into cities. Unemployment is uh, you know, pretty low. Uh, the, the crime rate is low. Uh, there was so much pessimism on both sides that uh, Trump had the field to himself. Certainly, the General pessimism about society is not new. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, there were plenty of, of uh, philosophers and artists who were saying, uh, uh, the country is doomed, it's decadent, uh, any day now it'll collapse. Um, and, uh, and it became very popular among a lot of intellectuals and professors and artists and writers. Um, there was a moment in the, uh, in the post-war years after World War II where there was a, a great deal of American optimism. Uh, there was, uh, we were going to fight poverty, we were, the United Nations was going to bring world peace. Um, and then, then a lot of cynicism uh, came in in the 60s with the war in Vietnam, the discovery of uh, so much poverty and racism in the United States. And it turned into, the pendulum swung so that uh, most uh, intellectuals and academics started to kind of hate the United States, to, to say that, uh, and the West more generally.
0: Well, in this atmosphere of cynicism and doom and gloom where everybody thinks that, you know, we're all going to hell in a handbasket and, you know, there's no hope for humanity, that you've come out and proven that that's just not the way it is. That may be where the focus is, but it's not the reality that we are in this enlightenment period. There are so many great things going on, and and it's great that you especially have come out and said this because you have such a big following, and it's such a great message to hear.
1: It is amazing when you, when you step back and you uh, not only look at, at uh, graphs and data, which I've tried to do, but even if you think back you know, not so long ago uh, about our recent history, you know, in the 1970s, which a lot of people are nostalgic for, we had uh, double-digit inflation, rates of inflation of 15%, 18%, and double-digit unemployment. Uh, the so-called misery index is what you get when you add them together. We had, uh, you had to line up around the block to get gasoline, Uh, people worried whether there was going to be enough heating oil to last the winter. So, um, Part of the problem is just not to be nostalgic for, for the good old days. As Franklin Pierce Adams said, the main, best explanation for the good old days is a bad memory. <laughs> right. <laughs> well,
0: well, that's human nature is to remember the good and forget the bad. because it, it,
1: That's literally true in that there are studies of memory that show that as uh, events fade into more distant memory, a lot of their negative uh, emotional colorings tends to fade. So we forget how awful it was.
0: Well, it's a good message you bring, and I appreciate you spending some time talking about it. Steven Pinker has been my guest, and his new book is called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Steven. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That too is a move, a smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a house boat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023. Turbo tax experts make all your moves count. What would you say is your favorite type of music? And maybe more importantly, why is it your favorite type of music? Everyone seems to like some kind of music, but where do we get our taste in music? And what does it say about us? That's what Nolan Gasser is here to discuss. Nolan is a composer and musicologist and the chief architect of the Music Genome Project which powers Pandora Radio. It breaks down what musical taste is, where it comes from, and what our favorite songs say about us. He's also author of the book, Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. Hi, Nolan. Welcome to Something You Should Know.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's nice to be here.
0: So is it your sense, or is there research that tells us that, that we've come to learn to like music, or are, are we humans just naturally a musical group?
2: Well, we are. I I think it can be said that we as a species have evolved um, to be musical. There's a big debate out there as to whether music was an adaptive trait that actually helped us to evolve and become human. Uh, pros and cons on that argument, which we can avoid, but I actually would argue that our inherent musicality, our ability to find and, and keep a pitch, our ability to be able to keep time with music and create that social bonding that happens uh, when we all participate uh, are the kind of emotional connection we get with music? Uh, that, the way that music can help us make friends and even sort of attract a mate. I think uh, these and other elements really helped us to survive. And the, almost everybody on earth, with obviously there are some exceptions, you know, loves music, has music that means something deeply to them. So there's, we are hardwired, as I like to say, in our brains and our bodies to be musical.
0: And typically when you ask people what their favorite music is, is it music from a particular time in their life or how does some kind of music become my favorite kind of music?
2: I kind of almost liken it to a big mystery novel, or some sort of a trajectory that takes us from the thirty thousand foot view uh, of you know looking at Earth down to the actual place where you stand. And so, collectively, we as Americans, if we you know grow up uh, in in you know in the twentieth century and twenty first century, there's obviously a lot of, of music that's tonal, as we call it, built on major and minor scales. We we hear a lot of piano, we hear a lot of electric guitar. And violins. If you grew up in India, in a small town, you will hear different kinds of scales, uh, more microtones, you'll hear different instruments like the sitar. And so that shapes a collective musical taste. And then as you go further down, our subcultures, I actually call them intracultures. Those cultures... Within our own broader culture that define who we are, our cliques and communities, that helps shape the kinds of music that we think is okay. And then at the end of the day, your taste is going to be yours alone. Even if you have a twin brother or sister, yours will be somewhat different, um, even though they'll obviously you'll share many traits in common with those that you grow up with.
0: And when you ask people... If you've ever asked this or if anyone's ever asked this, why do you like the music you like? Do people know why they like the music they like or do they just like the music they like?
2: Well, you know, I think on different levels, people have an an intuition about what music means to them. And it actually comes back to what you mentioned earlier. There's no doubt that as we grow and we move from childhood where we're exposed to music that our parents play and music in our community and church and synagogue and that kind of thing, uh, that becomes, you know, music that we accept as ours. But as we get into our, you know, teens and early adulthood, The music that we listen to becomes ours. We take ownership of it. It becomes a a, a window into who we can be as individuals and a badge of our own identity. So I think a lot of people will look at their musical taste and go back to, you know, when they were in middle school and high school and their first concert they went to, their first kiss, uh, those kinds of things, the music that really meant something to their budding identity.
0: When I think of my musical taste, and I don't know if I'm... No, normal or an oddball, but so I don't necessarily have a musical taste. I like lots of different music and I like different kinds of music in different situations and at different times. But but I don't have any big passion for a specific type of music so much as, yeah, I like that, I, yeah, I'll listen to that, that's nice, yeah, I remember that, that was good, but. But I don't. I'm not lying in bed at night going, "Oh God, I, I really I really want to hear uh, Black Sabbath."
2: <laughs> well, if you're lying in bed at night hoping to go to sleep, Black Sabbath may not be the best thing to play. But you're you're absolutely right that most of us are not single-minded in our in our musical taste. We have some level of of being eclectic. Uh, you know, some of us more than others. Um, and you're also absolutely right, and something that I think a lot about, and um, you know, we could, we should all understand ourselves. There's different contexts uh, where different kinds of music or different amounts of music makes sense. You know, if we're trying to relax, if we're out with friends, if we're trying to, you know, we're we're doing homework or working on something that kind of takes concentration, music can be a great you know sort of support to that but there's other times when listening to music as a dedicated activity putting the headphones on tuning out the world and following the musical discourse uh can be something incredibly enriching um and so it's good to have you know a broad taste it's good to keep an open mind and really i think it's something that we should all be aware of that we all have inherent bias we're all you know we all think that we are open minded more than we usually are and we think well that music is is fine for some people but that's not my music well if you actually give it time you know music of a different culture um, or a different style you know a lot of you know i grew up in an environment where you know country music you know is not something that we listen to or whatever but there's so much great country music if you if you open your ears to it even if you were raised on rock and roll and vice versa uh, in terms of the actual passion level it is a little bit of a of, a, of an individual story uh, there are certainly a lot of people who couldn't survive a day without, you know, certain kinds of music that they would listen to, or even a particular album. Other people less so. There actually are four percent or so of the population that actually have a condition known as amusia, where to some degree or another, music is not necessarily a pleasant thing. I'm not saying that's you, <laughs> but uh, you know that does exist too as a as an outlier.
0: Four percent of the population doesn't doesn't like music at all.
2: To to some degree or another, you know, and someone like like Oliver Sacks uh, has talked about this in some extreme cases and it has to do with the brain. Right. So whether it was through an accident or some sort of congenital, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, essence in the brain where the auditory cortex is not functioning the way that it does typically. Uh, the sound of music, sound of certain kinds of instruments or certain pitch levels actually can sound like pots and pans banging on the floor, as as Sachs puts it, or as one of his patients put it. Um, but in other cases, it's a little bit more subtle. Uh, you know, if you've ever, you know, hung out with somebody and they're trying to sing along with a song and they're like, oh, my God, you're like nowhere near the pitch. Well, that's actually a form of amusia, being tone deaf. Most of us have the inherent ability to follow a melody, and we may not have a beautiful voice, but we can find the pitch. Those that can't is actually a little bit of a, I don't want to use the word defect, but it's a, it is a—it is an abnormality compared to most. Similarly, those that can't necessarily really keep time got some friends that love music but you ask them to kind of keep the beat and it's like oh my god what's going on <laughs> so when you can't embrace music in these sort of full capacities it may have a tendency to lessen its impact not necessarily but anyway it is about four percent of the population that broadly speaking has the condition known as a, a musia.
0: well one of the things that i appreciate about music and that i enjoy about music is its ability to take me back or take me somewhere to remember a time when because that music was popular then or i first heard it then or even like you know if i listen to say a a frank an old frank sinatra one of his many you know lonely late night, mm-hmm. wee small hours kind of songs. It makes me think of, you know, like a rainy night in New York City kind of thing. And I like that it does that for me. And I assume it does that for other people.
2: Well, it, it's, uh, it connects to the notion of how music operates with, with memory, uh, which is, I think, such a fascinating part of the broader topic of musical neuroscience. So if we didn't have memory, uh, that could capture music, you know, we probably would be very disinterested in it. The reason why we love music, uh, especially some music is because it's ingrained in our memory, not just as sound, but in association with other stimuli and other sort of emotions, the things that we remember that, that, that embed, tra- you know, strong traits in our, me- in our memory that can be retrieved from the cerebellum, um, Deep in our brain are generally those things that have a strong emotional element to them So it was music that you when you first heard it or when you heard it at some time You know, you had a very positive, you know experience and when you're hearing frank sinatra It could actually elicit those memories with your parents or grandparents uh, Or some other, you know more innocent time when you didn't have so many responsibilities Uh, of course music can also have a relationship with place and time. So maybe you were in New York city, you know, visiting somebody and you heard some, uh, some, some Frank Sinatra or you just associate Frank with, with New York. Um, and so all these different associations, uh, in our own personal experiences are also why music is powerful. And that's why, you know, we, you, when you, you, know, you hear in, in the wee small hours of, of the morning, uh, you know, you you have so many different ways of referencing it as a standard, as a Frank Sinatra song, as a ballad, uh, and as maybe a little bit of a memory of you and your parents.
0: I remember when I was young and listening to rock and roll and my father would say, you know, he hated rock and roll he he just thought it was horrible and i said you know when i get older i'm i'm never going to have that attitude towards any music that i will be very open minded when new music shows up of course i find however <laughs> that a lot of new music i Abhor. I, don't, I think it's horrible. And <clears throat> I may not be as vocal as my father was, but uh, from what I understand, that's a fairly common occurrence every generation or so, that, that, that new music does not get the wide acceptance of the older generations ever, or certainly for a while.
2: So there's a couple of reasons for that. It comes d- down to what we've talked about, that the music that your, say, your kids or young, younger people uh, are listening to uh, when they're in their teens, that's the music that's helping them. It's the music of now, of today. And almost the fact that you're not into it helps them to, to own it. So this is not my music, music that my dad likes. This is not the Beatles. So there's part of that kind of you know, cultural and developmental aspect but there's another concept um, that's known as enculturation and it's kind of a fancy sociological term. And it means basically how we, you know, get ourselves used to different aspects of, of culture. So when it comes to music, In those early years of development, you know, even the first two years of life, we're hearing music, we're we're understanding the scales that are used, the harmonies, if there are harmonies, the kinds of instruments, the kinds of rhythms and meters that are used, and that becomes the normal, right? And so if something's outside the normal, our inherent tendency just as humans is to not like it we don't like what's unfamiliar at least at first um, or it takes a little bit of of extra effort and musicologists talk about enculturation as you know a distinction between say western uh, music and getting used to western music as opposed to say chinese or indian or some other culture but i actually believe that enculturation even goes deeper into culture, within a culture. So hip hop, for example, as a musical language or country music, if you're not weaned on that, if you didn't grow up listening to that, you're actually gonna be less sensitive to the kinds of subtleties, the the slight nuances in in whether it be in rhythm or even in lyric content, uh, hip hop is so much about rhythm and the kind of subtle nuances of this type of you know sixteenth note syncopation. You may not be able to say what it is, but you're hearing it and you're understanding it. So if that's the music you were raised on, you know, in those early years, you know, from you know nine through you know eighteen, you hear a lot of hip hop. You're actually going to be more able to find, um, you know, resonance and clarity and discernment on that music than somebody who, yeah, I've heard hip hop, but you're not raised on it. And so it it will still have that element of almost being another culture. So you have to kind of almost, you know, take the, it's like learning a new language, take the time of getting to know, okay, what's the difference between, uh, you know, Eminem and, uh, you know, and Snoop Dogg or whatever it is. Actually, the, the, those two aren't that far apart, but, um, you know, d- different subtleties within, uh, within a particular genre. So that that's part of it.
0: And still, one of the things that I find so interesting is when I was really young, I did not and was not familiar with any of the music that my parents listened to when they were young. Music from, say, the '40s. No, nobody was listening to music of the '40s in the '60s. I mean, they just weren't. I mean, you know, maybe at clubs for older people, but right. But I have a ten-year-old now who knows Pink Floyd, Queen. This is 40-year-old music that they still like today.
2: You know, our culture, our generation has so embraced classic rock Right. So I was raised on, you know, on groups like, you know, Queen and classic rock, you know, and uh, obviously I'm raised on the Beatles. So, you know, but I had a good friend who was really into Kiss and I was into Queen. This is middle school age. And it almost it kind of, you know, was such a distinction, a small difference between the, the styles. But it became a big difference to us and it kind of <laughs> broke up our friendship. But our, our generation today, classic rock is everywhere. So it's so much part of the mainstream. You hear it in, you know, in restaurants and elevators and in football games. And, you know, it's just in commercials. It's just um, it's so ingrained that your 10-year-old has been hearing that music since he was, you know, <laughs> since he was one. And so it's kind of his music, too that's part of it i would i would also argue that um, the musical world that we that is around today the pop and pop music of today is actually more just in terms of language is more similar to that classic rock say than class than music of the you know, rock in the 60s was to jazz in the 40s I, I, you know obviously a lot of similarities but uh, an entirely different approach to rhythm You know, one was swing based and one was generally not swing based, sort of straight eighth notes and, you know, heavier use of drums. Obviously, the difference between acoustic instruments like, you know, saxophones and trumpets in the in the big band era and electric guitars and electric organs and electric bass in the rock era. So there was even greater difference. Um, You know, one could argue that, you know, classic rock is just so it was such a flowering time and it's such great music that that's why it's still around. But great is really a subjective notion. It's really in the ear of the beholder. So I'd I'd rather look to other answers than say, you know, it's based on the quality of the music.
0: Right. Well, I've always thought that. because when you go back and listen to some of that big band swing music of the 40s, it's really good. But it seems to have died out, whereas rock and roll seems to have evolved.
2: Yeah, well, there are in, there are inherent aspects to a musical language. This is getting maybe a little bit more technical, but... Um, you know, jazz as a, as a genre, as, or as a species, as we called it, a Pandora, you know, has certain, you know, inherent elements. Uh, improvisation is a huge factor. So the individual, uh, you know, personality and technique of the soloist. Uh, you know, a jazz standard, as it's called, right? The way that it goes is the musicians will play the melody once, through and then there'll be you know 20 choruses of solo just based on the on the harmony um and then you come back to the the head as it's called you know pop music and rock music is very different you know it should be mentioned, obviously, the, a lot of the swing music was uh, instrumental, right? You had the big bands, you know, In the Mood and, uh, and you know, Tuxedo Junction and, and all those, uh, whereas, you know, pop and rock music uh, is obviously vocal and deals with themes, love and protest and whatever it may be that, that people can really sink their t- teeth into from a narrative standpoint.
0: You do hear people, though, talk about how great – rock and roll is, as if, you know, it's better than other forms of music. It certainly has lasted a long time and continues to evolve in different directions. But is it your sense that rock and roll is just so far superior than all other kinds of music? Or, or why did it and why has it lasted so long?
2: Rock and roll started kind of simple. You know, you think of Chuck Berry, basically, and uh, Bill Haley in the comments, basically blues progressions. But as you know, through the 60s, as you mentioned one of the reasons why rock and roll became so powerful is it became this vehicle of social, uh, you know, change and, you know, protests and all all this sort of social revolution of the 60s, music became an element. And, you know, people like, groups like the Beatles and uh, obviously so many, you know, great, great musicians, um, you know, Led Zeppelin and all these other, Pink Floyd, began to really explore the potential of rock and roll. And it really... um, it showed itself a tremendous vehicle for for sort of maturity and development uh and some people might say well you know rock has you know lost its ability to really you know you know you know fully evolve but i i i think that that's uh that's selling it short i think rock still has many 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 generations to pass through but you see that other genres like hip-hop have taken, have in some ways, taken its place. So it's it's always an interesting uh, game to watch.
0: Well, it's certainly a topic that everybody is interested in to some degree, because as we said at the beginning, everybody likes music and has their favorite music, and it's really interesting to understand where it comes from and why we why we like it so much. Nolan Gasser has been my guest. He is a composer and musicologist. He was the chief architect of the Music Genome Project that powers Pandora, and he's author of the book, Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. There's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks,
2: Nolan. All right, thanks very much, Michael.
0: So what is the difference between the words flammable and inflammable? They both mean burnable. But Inflammable has been around since at least 1605, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. Flammable first appeared in the 1920s, courtesy of the National Fire Protection Association. They decided that the IN at the beginning of Inflammable was confusing, that people might think it meant not burnable. So they created the words flammable and non-flammable to help avoid confusion and to distinguish between what will burn and what won't burn. But which is more correct? Well, history is on your side if you use inflammable to describe something that is burnable. But common sense dictates that if someone is about to light a cigarette next to a gas pump, you might want to go with flammable just so you're crystal clear. And that is something you should know. I know you know people who would enjoy this podcast, so please tell them about it, send them a link, or just tell them to look up Something You Should Know at Apple Podcasts or wherever they listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That, too, is a move, a smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a houseboat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023. TurboTax experts make all your moves count.